Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Today we're continuing our our series, uh, Heaven Came Down, and I've entitled uh, our message, Christmas uh, Through the Eyes of Shepherds. John Ortberg wrote a book a number of years ago, God is Closer Than You Think. And he wrote this, Father Demian was a priest who became famous for his willingness to serve lepers. He moved from Kalawao, a village on the island of Molokai in Hawaii, that had been quarantined to serve as a leper colony. And for 16 years, he lived with lepers. He learned to speak their language. He bandaged their wounds. He embraced bodies that nobody else would touch. And he preached to people who would have otherwise been left alone. He organized schools, bands, choirs. He built homes so lepers could have shelter. He built 2,000 coffins by hand so that when they died, they could be buried with dignity. It was said that Kalawao became a place to live rather than a place to die because Father Damien offered hope. But he was not careful about keeping his distance. He did nothing to separate himself from his people. He dipped his fingers in the poi bowl along with the patients. He shared his pipe. He didn't always wash his hands after bandaging open leprous sores. He got close. And for this, because of this, the people loved him. Then one day he stood up and began his sermon with two words. We lepers. Now he wasn't just helping them, now he was one of them. And from this day forward, he wasn't just on their island, he was in their skin. First he had chosen to live as they lived and now he would die as they died. Now they were in it together. See, Father Damien's proximity to lepers made him relatable made him approachable. He was not far off. Being far off in theological terms would be transcendent. He was not far away and transcendent and somebody we couldn't relate to, but he was knowable. He was graspable. In theological terms, it means he was imminent. He was with us. Jesus was like that in his coming to earth. How he came to earth was like that. How about the past president of Uruguay? BBC News 2012, Jose Mujica, president of Uruguay, held a unique position. The BBC called him the world's poorest president. It's a common complaint that politicians around the globe live in luxury while the masses they lead live in poverty. Instead, Mujica had chosen to identify with his people and he lived in a ramshackle farm on a dirt road outside the capital. A reporter described his approach to Mujica's lowly residence. Laundry is strung outside the house. The water comes from a well in the yard, not in the home. Overgrown with weeds, only two police officers and Manuela, a three-legged dog, keep watch outside. This lifestyle and the fact that Mojica donated about 90% of his monthly salary, equivalent to $12,000 to charity, has led him to be labeled the poorest president in the world. In 2010, his annual personal wealth declaration, mandatory for officials in Uruguay, was $1,800, which was the value of his 1987 Volkswagen Beetle. 
Actually, I think that's high. We had a beetle when I was a kid. The article also noted that Mojica doesn't have to live this way. Uruguay provides a luxurious presidential residence in the capital, but he chose to shun the privileges he has a right to enjoy, to stand in solidarity with the people he served. Jose Mujica lived in squalor. I've seen the pictures of his home. I've seen the residence, the palatial palace he could have lived in. Everyone in this room lives in better conditions than the president of Uruguay did a decade ago. In theological terms, Jose was not transcendent. He was not above us. He was imminent. He was graspable. He was knowable. He was relatable because of how he chose to live with his people. Jesus was like that in his coming to earth, how he came to earth. In the early 2000s, there was a TV program developed in the reality TV genre. It was called Dirty Jobs. It was a series that followed all the jobs that seemed a little disgusting to most of the rest of us. There were three sort of pilots, there were early uh, programs, and in those programs they talked about some of the things that none of us really would want to do. One of them was a bat biologist. A baseball rubbing mud collector. You might not know this, but every time before a baseball game, evidently they rub down the balls to scuff them up with a mud that comes from the Delaware River, and there's a dude who goes and gets that mud and ships it, sains it, washes it, and ships it to major league parks. A fish gutter. I think we'd all agree on that. Catfish noodler. Now, we don't have catfish in Canada, at least in this part of Canada. It's too cold, but down in the U.S., in many states, there are guys who go in rivers and they go to underground caverns and they stick their arms and they're hoping a catfish will bite their hand. They grab their mouth and a 30, 40, 50, 60, or 70-pound catfish is on their arm. It's called noodling, and they pull them out. Not a great job. You can drown. A septic tank technician. You have to use the word technician to get anyone to take the job. <laughs> a worm rancher, a roadkill collector. These are the things that nobody wants to do. Do you know who the dirty jobs people were in Jesus' day? Shepherds. Shepherds were outcasts. Shepherds were despised by the religious class. Shepherds couldn't go to church or temple. They would be kicked out. But the first people to hear of Jesus' birth were shepherds, and it came from angels, not Snapchat or TikTok or Facebook or all the other apps that I don't use. What is the message there? That the message of the Son of God coming into humanity first came to the dirty jobs guys. There is a message there that God was not transcendent, too far away to understand or relate to, but he would be imminent, he would be with us, he would be relatable and graspable. I want to read the passage for you from Luke chapter two. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you, and about three quarters of the way through, the New Testament starts at page one, it's on page 45. Actually, page 44 and 45. Luke chapter two, this is the story, is Luke, a physician, a researcher in the first century gives us the story. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Israel was a part of the province of Syria at that time. Everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city, like place of origin. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem 
because he was of the house and family of David. In order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, or betrothed would be a better word, and was with child. While they were there, the days were come, or completed, for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths. That's not the sign. This is the sign lying in a manger, lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. I believe that's a military term. Thousands of angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this Christ. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as they had been told. In Bethlehem, God kept his promise. One of the ways we identify God in history is through what we call fulfilled prophecies. These are promises God made hundreds of years earlier and then fulfilled. And some scholars have identified maybe 450 plus prophetic references to the Messiah or Jesus in the Old Testament. Over 450 things were said about him Some of them are probably repetitions of the same thing, but over 450 promises about Jesus, and we have many of them that are actually about the circumstances of his birth. In Genesis chapter 3.15, right after sin came into the world, when there's only two people on the planet, and sin has come into the world, God promises that the one who will undo the damage of sin in the future would be the seed of a woman. It demanded a human savior. It demanded the incarnation. It also, because it says seed of the woman, the actual Hebrew construction likely demands a virgin birth, some would say. Second page of scripture, the virgin birth is virtually required by the Hebrew construction there. Genesis 12, a promise to Abraham that he would bless all nations. Now the Messiah or Jesus needs to be Jewish. Genesis 49, not just Jewish, but through one of the 12 tribes, the line of Judah. He would be the lion of Judah. 2 Samuel 7, within the line of Judah, the line of King David. Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin birth is reiterated, looking back to the second page of Scripture, and we have the introduction of something else. It won't just be a man-savior, it will be a God-man, because the word is introduced there, Emmanuel which means with us, God. All of these predictions. And they end in the last part of the Old Testament with Micah 5.2. Not the last, uh, last chapter, but the, the last, uh, in the last set of prophets. And that says that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. 
This relates to the line of David, which is promised earlier because David is from Bethlehem. The future king would be from that little town. Now that's about 400 years before Mary and Joseph are coming to Bethlehem in our story. These are all God's fingerprints in history. They're incredible affirmations of a God who can do anything. He predicts the future, the predictions happen, we know it's God. It's God's fingerprints sovereignly in history. Mary and Joseph weren't from Bethlehem, not presently, not immediately. Joseph's family line was from Bethlehem. He may have been born there, I'm not sure, but his family line is from there. Now they're from Nazareth. There were no plans to go to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a town of mere hundreds. It was not a big town at all. There was no birthing center in Bethlehem, and there was no reason to go there. So God did something really unique. Because he's sovereign and he controls history, Syria was the Roman province that governed Israel at the time. Israel was a conquered nation. Caesar Augustus was the Roman emperor and he issued a decree that a census would be taken of all the known world, in other words, the whole Roman Empire, for tax purposes, military purposes. They did this, I believe, every 14 years. In fact, if you go around the world today, we can actually find these censuses, not the one of Jesus during Jesus' day, but we can find Roman censuses from history. They exist in museums around the world. And that required Joseph to return to his family line's town of origin. It was good timing. Nazareth was kind of becoming a tough place to be. Mary's pregnancy was not normal. Mary's pregnancy was a miracle. God initiated. Joseph had not been with Mary physically. So of course, Joseph, like you and like me, would not believe her. And he assumed that during their betrothal period, which was more than engagement, but it wasn't full marriage, it was during their betrothal period, she becomes pregnant. Nobody would believe her story of a virginal conception. So the gossip and slander began to flow in Nazareth. An angel appeared to Joseph to confirm what God had actually done with Mary so that Joseph would take Mary home as his wife without ever consummating the marriage until after Jesus' birth, Joseph brings Mary with him and then the census takes place and so they make this trip to Bethlehem together. And it was sort of a welcome way to avoid the gossip. They traveled 80 miles over many days and they arrived in Bethlehem ready to deliver the Son of God. In Micah 5.2, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem was fulfilled. In Bethlehem, God revealed his heart for mankind. See, it's not just that God came into humanity, it, it's how he came into humanity. And the story is beautiful in every way. They arrive in Bethlehem after days of travel. There's no hotel or motel. There was likely what's called a caravansary. I think the word you have in your Bible is in. Probably a caravansary, which would be two Greek words combined, pandecomai. Pan means all, decomai means welcome. Everyone was welcome at the pandecomai. And it was not the right place for privacy or safety. It was a series likely of crude stalls and tarps that created sort of small stalls or rooms. And it was full. 
But Joseph knew of the town's history. This was shepherd country. This is where David was from. David was a shepherd. And this was shepherd country. And in bad weather, local shepherds would shelter in caves. This is, uh, the whole city is sort of located on sort of a saddle, uh, a land, sort of a geological saddle. And, and it was a limestone formation. And thousands of years of rains and springs had hollowed out a series of caves in the side of the cliffs or hills that Bethlehem sat on. Joseph knew about this. And he led Mary into one of those caves. And he made her as comfortable as possible. And by lantern light, the young couple brought the Son of God into the world. He was wrapped in, some versions say, swaddling cloths. This was normally, they were little strips of cloth. They would wrap all of their limbs in these strips of cloth. And he was comforted, soothed, and probably breastfed. And then placed in a feeding trough reserved for animals sheltered in storms. That was the sign. You'll find a baby in a feeding trough. Not that you'll find a baby. Not that you'll find a baby wrapped in cloths, but that you'll find God in human flesh in an animal feeding trough. Six miles to the north is Jerusalem. It's the center of religion. Jerusalem is filled with Pharisees and Sadducees, two religious parties that dominated the religious scene. It was home to the priesthood. It's home to the temple. It's home to the sacrificial system. It was full of hope that a Messiah would be born to rescue Israel, and the Pharisees, the leading religious party, assumed that this Messiah would come from their ranks. Jerusalem remained undisturbed that night. No angels appeared in Jerusalem, the center of religion. But out in the fields near Bethlehem, there's a group of shepherds, the dirty jobs guys. And interesting, they're likely the shepherds providing sheep for temple sacrifice, and I'll tell you why in a few moments. But remember, shepherds guys, uh, shepherds are the dirty jobs guys, and they're, they're viewed, and this is interesting, they're viewed as untrustworthy. They could not legally testify in court they couldn't go to church, synagogue, or temple. Why? Because the religious leaders in Jerusalem viewed them as unclean. You see, to go to church, you needed to be ceremonially or ritually clean. Say, so what does that mean? Well, here's the problem. It wasn't about what was in your heart. It wasn't about whether you were a good person, whether you're trying to obey God with your life, whether you had faith in God. To be clean, in their minds, meant it, it had to do with physical issues, not the heart, it was the external. Uh, forgive me, ladies, but a woman was unclean about a week a month during her cycle. She was ceremonially unclean, couldn't go to temple. Anyone was unclean if they came in contact with a dead animal or the south side of an animal heading north. You were unclean you came in contact with something like that. All these things made you physically unclean and therefore ceremonially unclean and you couldn't go to church during that time until you did some special washings. But what's interesting is also if you were unclean and you touched somebody else, you made them unclean as well. And so there was this whole religious system built on this external view of cleanliness 
And shepherds, because of what they did, were always deemed to be unclean, so they couldn't come to church, they couldn't come to temple, therefore they were viewed as irreligious and not okay. In fact, the rabbis of that day instituted a law that no shepherding could take place, I believe it was in six miles, within six miles of Jerusalem, because the temple was in Jerusalem. They didn't want shepherds on the roads, contaminating people coming on trips to Jerusalem. The one exception were the shepherds that took care of the temple flocks for sacrifice. That was probably these shepherds. But it was shepherds who first got the news that they were to come and and look for a manger. The sign would be not a baby, not a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, but a baby in a manger. You have God in a feeding trough. Why was that important? It was to send a message. It was so we'd see God not as transcendent and above us and hard to reach and not somebody we can grasp or understand, but to understand the imminence of God, that that he's graspable, he's knowable, he's with us, he's one of us in this case. He came into humanity. God could have orchestrated a better arrival. He didn't want to. Instead, he wanted you to see a poor couple with an unexplainable, controversial pregnancy which made them shunned walk an 80-mile journey to a little tiny historic town where there was no room for them at a place called Everyone's Welcome. He wanted you to see a cave for a birthing room and a feeding trough for a bed and shepherds as the first people who would get the news. The dirty jobs guys, the guys who can't go to church or temple ever. See, that makes Jesus imminent, knowable, graspable, believable when he says, I want to know you, I want you to follow me, I came here for you, and I love you just the way you are. Finally, in Bethlehem, God offered to meet our greatest need, which is peace. Now, many prophecies in the Old Testament refer to a future world that we haven't seen. Within all branches of Christianity, within all denominations, there's belief that Jesus is coming back someday. Now, we don't necessarily agree on when and how and what that's going to look like, and there's all sorts of different views theologically about it, but there's a belief that Jesus will come back someday and he will rule this world and he will rule all nations. We're pretty much universally agreed on that because there's a lot of scriptures about it. Messiah will rule the world. The earth will experience global peace for the first time. This promise may have some relationship to this passage and the hope that comes from it, but it actually looks like something else here. Because Luke uses the words, peace to men with whom he is pleased. Peace to men with whom he is pleased. That doesn't sound like international peace brought by the second coming. Rather, this is a peace offered to all of us as we respond to Jesus' offer of salvation and peace with God. He's offering peace to you and me. He's not offering peace to the world here. That's in other passages. This is peace to you and me. 
Because the baby in the manger didn't come to be a baby in the manger. The baby in the manger came to fulfill other promises that he would die on a cross. Actually, promises about him dying on a cross in Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Jesus came. How he would die was predicted 700 years before that he would die on a cross. That was always the plan. It's not about the baby, it's about Easter. Our sin, our choices, my choices and your choices have separated us from a holy and perfect God. It's as if because of this, there's this great gulf or chasm between a perfect God over here and you and me over here. We used to be in fellowship with God until we brought sin into the world. Now there's this great chasm between us and Jesus becomes the bridge that brings us back together. He becomes the bridge that accesses God again. His death on the cross as the perfect son of God paid the penalty for our choices, our wrong choices that we've made that separated us from God. You could never bridge that chasm by being a good guy. You can't do it. But you can accept what Jesus did for you when he died on the cross That's why Christianity is simply faith in Jesus as Son of God, Savior, and Lord. It's simple. Now, faith is very simple because we're not sort of working our way across that chasm. We're believing certain things, but with that belief comes commitment. And what it means to be a Christian is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that these promises hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus that he would be God in the flesh, that he would be the seed of the woman, all of these promises make him son of God. The virginal conception, this miracle within Mary, make him the son of God. It's God joining human flesh. We have to believe that to be a Christian. We have to believe that when he died on that cross, that is what satisfied God's wrath for our sin. That's what bridges the chasm. Jesus is the bridge. His death paid the penalty for our sins. It's our only hope. We have to trust in that as the path back to God. And we have to acknowledge that in order to get the benefit of that cross and who he is, he is the Lord of our lives and we want to follow him. This Christmas Eve, if you've never found that peace with God, I just want to give you a chance to make that commitment in your heart of hearts. And I put sort of a prayer of faith up on the screen for you. And I'm just going to read through this out loud. But if it's your desire to follow Jesus, I would encourage you just to silently in your pew say these words in your heart as I read them aloud. Dear Jesus, thank you for coming into this world to rescue us. I believe you are the Son of God. And I believe you died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. I want to follow you. Come into my life as Son of God, Savior, and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. There's nothing magical about those words. They just reflect what the Bible says we need to believe to follow Jesus. If you made that commitment for the first time in your heart today, I'd encourage you to let an elder know or a staff member here or a friend. And as you begin your journey to follow Jesus, we want to help you in any way that we possibly can. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for the baby in the manger and the cross 33 years later. We don't have one without the other. 
I thank you for this beautiful story. And I thank you for the way you came into this, into this world, demonstrating your imminence, how much you are going to be relatable. You came as one of the least of these so that we who feel like you are too far away can grasp that you're not. You're a God who understands us, who came to us the way that you did. Thank you for that story. May every one of us find you in our hearts this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.